two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and with me is my co-host, Derek Alton, and we're at the 2022 Code for America Conference in Arlington, Virginia. And now we're going to do an analysis of what we learned on day one of the conference. And to do that, we are joined by Ben Trevino, the Interim Senior Program Director of the Code for America Network, as well as the, as the Code for America Brigade Program Director. So let's uh, give uh, Ben a big warm hello and welcome. Hey, how's it going, buddy? Welcome, Ben. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, it's well, great to have you here. Yeah, no doubt. It's absolutely. So well, let's get right down to it. Uh, what was one of the big trends for you today? And why do you think that trend is particularly important? We just came out of a session that we co-hosted with the Knight Foundation, who is one of the major funders and sponsors of the network. Uh, and that session was all about partnership. And in civic tech, civic tech is a blending of, of many things, even in the word itself or in the phrase itself, civic and tech. Those are two relatively different things that have to come together uh, and are effectively a, a partnership of two different disciplines. And so the, the idea of partnership is something that we have observed over the years of our volunteer activities the Code for America Network deals with volunteers. Partnership is, sits at the core of, of really having impact. Many activities, but, but of the ones that we are most invested in, having real impact on real, commun- like real families and real communities, that must be partner-driven. And that's been a theme of the day for, for me. What's the theme of the whole conference? If- Together, forward together, right? Yep. And we, I guess we build it. We build the path forward together. Yeah, and together is one. So our partnerships are one form of doing things together, obviously. And actually, I'm going to ask for 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 Derek because he's a big community guy. <laughs> and I, I, let's let's go to that a little bit in terms of as a trend that partnerships are working together is obviously really important. In your experience, what are some other ways other than partnerships, like structures on how? We can all work together forward and as we build this new path. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that's really sort of talking about trends around this uh, that the summit really brought forward to me is the idea of just human interaction and relationships. So forget formal partnerships. It's the informal connections. I mean, we were talking about that a bit uh, before we started recording this. That's right. And what the summit is doing, and it, different people we've talked to throughout the day have commented on this, is that it's giving people a chance, the Coachella of, you know, of the civic tech space for people to bump into each other and build those loose ties, those relationships, those sense of connections around common values and identity, that that lays the groundwork for the partnerships to happen down the road, for us building a path together. It starts with these interactions that happen at stuff like the summit. And it was amazing to see because we haven't had a lot of this in a while. I mean, the pandemic has kind of kept us inside and away from each other, except through screens. And screens are great, but it doesn't, there's something different that happens when you come physically together in the same place. And so it was very, it was magical to see. I mean, we, we've had to wait to record this because people were so excited to connect and have those interactions that they stayed way past the time that they were originally planning to because they just didn't want to leave. Uh, and I think for me, that was a really interesting trend that serves as a foundation to build the community that leads to the partnerships that helps us build a path forward together. Yeah, one of the things that, that definitely resonated with me as a whole is actually how we 
you know, me and Derek got to sit at this table, right? And we're just a couple of guys out in Canada, and we knocked on the door of Code for America, and it was not a formal MOU or statement of work. We're just like, we'd like to come and record episodes. It was not a partnership. It was not an informal kind of deal. It was just two like-minded individuals. Like, and I hate to bring up Star Wars and the, Fent uh, the Phantom Menace, but it was like, it was a symbiotic relationship and you guys are the big fish and we're the little fish. And, but it just sort of seemed like we worked well together that it made sense for us to come down. In Code for America saw the value of us coming down and you know they helped us to come down a little bit. Like they didn't, it was in kind. But I think it's not necessarily an informal relationship, but it was like, it makes too much sense to not work together. Well, and it, it's, it's kind of cool to see how that came together and how it develops. And this is where the interactions, you never know where they're going to lead. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in many ways, part of that happened because you and Amanda already had a connection because mm -hmm. you'd interacted, you'd interviewed her on in a previous podcast. So there's already a pre-established relationship and an alignment around values mm -hmm. and I ideas so that when we approached her, she's like, oh, yeah, I remember you guys. I remember that we had that connection, that we had that symbiosis. The Medicorian count was high. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, um, and I think that laid the groundwork that then allows us to build to this and this is just the next step and who knows where we go from here of all the Star Wars to bring up <laughs> I know Phantom Menace of all the Star Wars to bring up Richard but, <laughs> so, but I have to say I, I get it and I, and I appreciate that and, and I, and I want to say I think that's how organizing works you know the, the, a big part of what we do as a network is we think of ourselves as organizers we think of civic tech as a movement and we think of how do we bring more people into this movement and so much of it is is a kind of leadership that involves, I'm gonna do this thing because it's important to me. I'm gonna do this thing because I value it. If you see a way for you to get involved, I value that too. I'm here to support you. You come in with me, I'm gonna do it. And by, by putting up that flare, by waving that flag, we make it possible for other people to, see, to do the thing that they do as a part of what we do and we get stronger together. And that's how we build the path forward together. Well, and I think through that interaction, new possibilities emerged that we didn't necessarily know or expect. And I mean, it was interesting. So like the, the first session I went to today, the building capacity from within, uh, which had a bunch of uh, people from Code for America and from the state of Minnesota talking mm -hmm. about a partnership that they had. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting about that was the relationships. The mm -hmm. relationships they built, and through those relationships, they shared ideas mm -hmm. and knowledge that they didn't have before. And um, that, created new possibilities. Mm -hmm. A new path appeared because of those relationships that didn't exist before that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it was an adjacent possible, adjacent possible and it became possible yeah. through yeah. that interaction. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's been coming up for me as we meet in person, because so many, so many people have reflected, this is special, we haven't done this in a long time, there's something special about meeting in person and we haven't been able to do that. And I'm a big proponent for the possibility of connection through things like Zoom, through the experience that we have had over the last couple of years where we've been really limited in the amount of in-person time that we've been able to spend. But I, but I believe, I truly believe that there's a lot of possibility for connection even in those, across a laptop screen in, in Zoom. And so then what is it that's special about being able to meet in person again? Because we all feel it. We feel that there's something different going on. Our whole program, the Brigade program, exists because people got so much value and energy from coming together in a physical place together. And what I take away from all of that is that 
it's not just that we convene people. It's not just that we get all of our physical bodies in one place. I think that I think we we have an intuition around it as humans and as people in social situations. Like we we're pretty good at that. But I think that there's more that we can do both in the in-person space and in the virtual space to intentionally create connections. Right? Not every conversation that we have is going to create a connection. So what's the difference between a conversation that does make you feel connected to somebody and one that doesn't? Mm-hmm. And how do we do more of those ones that do make us feel connected? How do we develop that practice? And in our volunteer network, that's something that is a really important priority to me, is how do I set up our volunteers in our network to make connections with each other, with their partners, with their communities, so that it's not just that they're spending time together, but that they are intentionally forming relationships. And that's how we have a network. Well, I got to ask the question then, what do you do? Because I, I, you're so right. There's so many times I've spoken to someone, yeah. you even do a, cre- a credit card exchange, a business card exchange and all yep. that. And you never see that person again or speak to them ever again. But other times is the complete opposite. Like you become like, you know, famous, you know, famous relationships and things along those lines. Yep. What is it that you guys do with the brigade to ensure that mm. those connections domino into something mm. as opposed yeah. to stall at the handshake? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'd be, I would love to have a conversation about this because I think we've got, I think there's some things that we do pretty well and there's some things that we don't, don't do well at all that we're trying to figure out. I have some personal ideas, so I'd, I'd be interested to yeah, engage and cool. say, okay, like, what, what do you think? So the, the one thing that I think brigades have, like our, our killer app, our number one asset when it comes to forming relationships is that because we do project-based work, there is purpose, there is this opportunity to share purpose and then... And that's expressed both through the values of a project and then the actual doing of the project. That will create conflicts because sometimes people do not agree necessarily. Maybe they don't have the same idea of the values of the project. Maybe they don't have the same idea of how to implement it. And so we see a lot of conflict in projects around that. But in general, the fact that there is a project is one of the main things that brigades offer as a relationship building asset because that project focuses all of our volunteers' energies on a common purpose and allows mm-hmm. us to see each other for what we value, what we think is important, and what we want to contribute to that. So that's one thing. That's one thing that, that we do. Sometimes, you know, I don't know if it's you or, or, or if, you're the, if you guys are the same way as I am, but there's a, there's a human... I'm not going to... I'm going to say pheromones, but it's not pheromones. It's something else. Like, sometimes you meet a person and you just like them. Mm-hmm. Chemistry. Right? chemistry. There's a chemistry yeah. there and it's not like, you know, I'm not talking about a sexual chemistry. I'm talking, mm-hmm. there's just like, we see eye to eye on things. We speak the same way. Yeah. And there's like body language that's involved and all of a sudden you're just sort of sucked into that that I think a lot of times even through a camera, you're not going to get. Yeah. And I don't know what it is exactly but I, I love that feeling but at the same time I also know that feeling is is fleeting. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. that feeling for a few moments, mm-hmm. then you go back and nothing comes out of it. And mm-hmm. I like the fact that you always try to frame it around let's, the conversation should end like how do we work together? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to reach deep into my brain because so Richard, there's research on this. <laughs> there are theories that exist. And yes, I, in my master's, I did study this stuff. And there's a body of knowledge written by a woman. I'm trying to remember what it's called. I'm going to quickly look it up. But it, it's this idea of synchronicity, that mm. this experience, and, and she uses it, she's redefining love mm. as this experience in the moment where you are in harmony. And you can actually see it physiologically because our, and you put people who are going through this experience under uh, 
brain scan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You actually, the, their brain, like the energy, like the, the brain waves are just literally like yeah, the you same. Can, they, it's the same. It's a, it's a carbon wow. copy of each other. Wow. And so that's the physiologically, like what's happening is that the electrons are matching to the mirror neurons are matching to other in the brain. The chemicals within the body are matching each other and harmonizing. And the experience that we get is that experience of chemistry, that experience mm. of connection, mm. what she calls love 2.0. Which I believe mm. is the name of the book that, that I'm is thinking of. Possibly one of the worst way to label that thing. That is, <laughs> <laughs> that is, so, that is so, such a cold description of this wonderful feeling. <laughs> um, and, and I see Derek, you're just looking it up Barbara right now. Barbara Fredrickson, Love 2.0, Finding Happiness and Health. Say that mm. again because it's, I was talking over you. It's Love 2.0, Finding Health and Happiness by Barbara Fredrickson. Oh, well, there you go. So. Uh, and it's a, you know, I, I'm going to just do a hard pivot in it right now because this is a day one analysis of some of the sessions that we all experienced today. And I want to go back to you, Ben, because in particular, I'm assuming you were heavily involved with the programming. I'm, I'm making this assumption. At least you're much closer than a lot of people. Sure. And uh, were there any sort of sessions in particular that you found that really exceeded your expectations in terms of what you learned from it or even the presenter? Sometimes some presenters just mm. have that that it factor. They mm. can just capture an audience. Yeah. It doesn't matter what they say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to, I'm going to shout out my network colleagues and, and the folks that, that are on the network and the folks that we have worked with. So there were three lightning talks that were network themed. I did one that, that was a call to action, but the two volunteers that preceded me, one was talking about national action teams uh, and this beautiful talk about how our 911 system, what it's ultimately lacking is a heart. And the work that they do in the data analysis, everything they're doing is ultimately about finding that 911 system's heart. And Sorry, define heart in this, in this con- because I'm, I'm curious to know yeah. what it's meant yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, uh, so what she talked about is that, that the heart has three ingredients, and I'm going to test my memory to see if I can actually <laughs> remember these three ingredients. Uh, one of them was vulnerability. Uh, the other was community. And the third one was you, as in participation as in all of us. And so the, the heart of this 911 system, if we think about what, what is it that we're looking for in a system for our neighbors and ourselves of crisis response? How do we want to respond? What do we want this system to look like? We probably don't want it to be cold. Uh, we don't want it to be absent of relationships. We want it to be contextualized in relationships. And we want it, we want to be a part of it. We want to be part of it because we know that Sometime we will be in crisis and we will need people, we will want people to respond to us. And so this collective, this collective perspective on 911, the way that she described that, that, that's having a heart, a system with a heart. And I thought that was beautiful. And I thought she lit up the room. I thought she just nailed that presentation. And one of our brigade volunteers, Isabel, came from Baltimore. So in, in the area and talking about for, for volunteer activities that are happening here in, in the D.C. area, what does it look like? What, and she told her story of coming to Baltimore from Mexico, finding her place in a volunteer community of civic tech, but not being technical, mm. uh, and, and eventually stepping into leadership because she saw a way that she could be a contributor. She saw a way that this organization could reflect her values and the work that she wanted to do. And, and that's the story of the Brigade Network. It's, it's not necessarily, you don't end up where you thought you were gonna end up. And that's really important because our communities 
need that. We need, we need to be able to be flexible and responsive because sometimes the solutions aren't what we think they are, but we're all here to learn about what those solutions are. Derek, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Because I, uh, I have a million, but I don't want to no, commandeer. No, go for it. Go for it. I'm, I'm still just soaking it all in. You, you mentioned the element of a non-technical person entering a technical world like civic tech, and it's sort of a function of bad branding or bad marketing in a way that civic tech has to be called civic tech, mm, right? Yeah. Uh, because just by its name alone, you think it might exclude an audience. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. for me, uh, I am definitely not a technical person. I can't code worth a lick. That's, mm. you know, I, my, my go-to line is I can bold an HTML and I'm, I'm proud of that. And it stops there, right? But at the same time, there is, you know, this whole session, one of the trends that I saw was, you know, and we did a whole episode on, you know, diversity, um, equity, Inclusion, inclusion and, and accessibility. accessibility. Yeah. There is a branding problem, I think, that we have in this space. Again, just from the word civic tech, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or politics. Some people will talk mm. about, think about politics. And some people don't want to be associated with politics or government mm. because they think it's what politicians. they... Exactly. It's politicians. Yeah. It's house of cards. It's the you know mm. deputations of people ranting inside City Hall. Mm. The three of us know that it's so much more than that. Mm. It's... This is a word that you use all the time, Derek. You know, it's giving someone agency, mm. control and power and the ability to change their government through other means. Mm. One of the... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. I just was... I was... I was... Yes. I was thumbs up in plus plus in <laughs> everything that, that you were saying. One of the... And I, this is a, a line that I use frequently and I've been using it for almost 10 years now is that civic engagement as a marketing tool, as a brand, is a terrible brand mm. in that... People think about picketing at City Hall. They think mm. about, uh, 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 you know, doing a deputation, running for office, giving money to politicians. Nobody, for the most part, wants to, to do that. And on top of it, mm. judges, judges issue community service as punishment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Talk yeah. about excluding an audience. Yeah. We're actively promoting people to not do civic engagement. Mm. Yeah. And, and I love that you're saying that non-technical people is just as important for them to be in the civic tech world and others and yeah. that you know yeah well let me let me i thank you for all those reflections those were beautiful especially the judge <laughs> issuing civic service as, yeah. as a punishment yeah i love that i'm gonna remember that so uh I'll, I'll give you an example that i like to that i like to trot out because some of my backgrounds in transportation so mm -hmm. Uh, before working for Code for America, I launched the Honolulu bike share system, Beaky Bikes. So I worked in alternative transportation and I worked for many years on um, a big rail project, a big infrastructure project we're building in Honolulu. The Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation is building an elevated rail system. So um, one of the complaints about the rail system, and there are many, uh, one of the complaints is that it's old technology. Right, it's steel wheel on steel rail trains. Uh, why aren't we using the newest maglev technology for our train? Right, and um, and so that's interesting, right? Like that's that's a comment, and and when you think about the history of trains, okay, let's go back as far as we can remember about trains. At one point, if you saw a train, that was mind blowing, like that was like seeing a spaceship come down from space because you had never seen anything like that. And it was and is technology. 
right? And we don't think of it as technology. Now it's a, a, it's a division of the federal government. There is a federal transit administration. It's so blasé that it's like, oh, well, th this is just this is as institutional as it gets, mm. right? But it is technology. And how many other things are we overlooking that are in fact technology, but from a brand standpoint, technology is laptops and technology is code and technology is radio waves and whatever, right? Like we think there's a concept that we have of, of what we think technology is. And to your point, I think there's a branding issue because it excludes some things that are in fact technology and would benefit from some of the ways that we look at technology and some of the things that we demand of technology. We demand that technology serve a civic purpose or we demand that technology be equitable or we demand that technology be diverse to serve diverse populations. And, and if we can look at things through those lenses, then it actually opens up a world of possibility if we look beyond websites and hmm. apps and laptops and computers. And, and I think that that is one of the things that I, I hope comes out of brigades because we engage in community, we have access to a broader concept of technology, including, among other things, government, government as a technology. And we understand that in, this, in the work that we do, government is part of a stack of technologies that we are trying to have some influence over. Well, I mean, one of the terms that I've heard thrown around a lot is the idea of social technologies. Mm -hmm. So government's a social technology. Mm -hmm. Religion is a social technology. These yep. are technologies that isn't about ones and zeros. It's about how we organize ourselves. Yep. But it, what you're talking about reminds me a lot of this heated debate. So I work in the space of digital government transformation. And this question of like, what is digital? And this whole thing of trying to reframe digital to be about more than just tech. Mm. It's about policy. It's about culture. Mm. It's about mm. all these different things. And today at the summit, you saw that. You saw different sessions. Some sessions were very tech-focused, but even the tech-focused ones very quickly drifted into discussions around policy, discussions mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. relationships, mm -hmm. community processes. And I think it's, it's, re it's realizing that what we're talking about, this transformation, is so holistic. It seeps into everything that we do. Mm. And I think what's exciting for me is when you move from it being just a conversation about tech to a conversation about policy, conversation about culture, you're moving into a conversation that's about sustainability. It's a conversation about doing things that lead to long-term impacts. It's not a flash in the pan, because one of the topics, you know, we are coming out of a pandemic, hopefully, fingers crossed. Uh, we don't want to go back to where we were, right? We want, you know, the pandemic has, you know, don't waste a good crisis. The pandemic has yeah. created a space for us to do things in new ways. Yeah. But now that things are going that are, we're coming out of the pandemic, how do we move forward? Mm -hmm. Again, coming to that theme that we had today of moving forward and not snapping back into what we had before. And so a lot of the panels are talking about, you know, this is what we did and this is how, it was really cool to see how they talked about taking what they did and then being designing it into the processes, the policies, the mm. culture, so that when, you know, whether it was Code for America was working with this group, Code for America steps out, you know, Minnesota continues. Mm -hmm. and, and this comes in. I know in one of the conversations uh, we had with uh, Govern for America, uh, you know, the conversation was about, you know, they come in, they provide the, the uh, Iron Man suit, uh, but when they leave, they leave in a way that the people continue to move forward with that Iron Man suit. Uh, it's something that stays with them. And, and so that cultural change, that, mm. that, that something that sticks beyond just technical solutions. Yeah, yeah. I, th this reminds me, and, and I apologize if this is a non sequitur, but this, this reminds me of, uh, it's about the long haul and, and how do we how do we, even though we're participating in the present, uh, participate over a, a longer period of time? How do we understand our role today in, in the long chain of events? And I have been inspired by 
some of the technological perspectives that I've learned from uh, indigenous people and, and native organizations. And one presentation I saw was about storytelling in native cultures. And the bar for storytelling in native cultures is, is seven generations. So, so can you tell a story? So if you are trying to capture the value of a lesson that was learned in your lifetime, to, com- to communicate that story, seven generations, 200 years, is a technological environment that is incomprehensible to the people today, just the same way that 200 years ago, that technological environment is probably incomprehensible to us. Like mm-hmm. we, we, have, we don't have enough references to understand, even though we could read the history books and look at illustrations, it, we would not understand it. So what does it mean to send something of value 200 years into the future so that they can learn from that lesson, right? That that is, that, that is available. And the standard is to take, to take this lesson and abstract it. So one of the parts of the process is to abstract it into something that is essential. And then the next part of the process is to infuse into the things that we will always have, characters, people, stories, to infuse those stories with that essential abstraction. And that story is the thing that allows you to communicate across disparate technological environments. And that was the solution to how do we, how do we make change over the long haul? Well, I, I find it really fascinating. It makes me think so one of the people we had a chance to talk to earlier today was Victor from NASA. And NASA sending people into space, you know, some of the thinking they had to do when they sent uh, some of their early probes or the satellites that went way into deep spaces, they had to think of like, how do we put messages onto these satellites yeah. that transcend culture, yeah. that transcend time, that transcend space. <laughs> yeah. uh, and just the thinking that needs to go into that, I think is really fascinating. It's the same type of philosophy around the yeah. seven generation thing. It's like, how do we communicate the essential pieces? Yeah. I want to ask you a question. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, you were going to respond to that. Go ahead, Ben, first. Uh, just a, a quick response. I mean, I think as I reflect, I mean, to, when you take those two examples together, the, there's, there's sort of uh, a standard that is applied, right? You, you, the standard that's applied in that NASA example is what is going to cross cultures? We don't ask ourselves that question about everything that we produce, but we could, right? And, and so we could decide that this is a value that's important to us, just the same way that we don't ask ourselves is this going to be useful 200 years from now? But we could. And native cultures did. And, and so what can we learn from that in terms of what are the outcomes? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and do they align with the outcomes that we want to have? Right? And especially ones like sustainability and being around for the long haul. I want to ask the both of you this question. Derek, you know the question, but I'm going to ask it to you, Ben, because it relates to something that's particularly near and dear to me, and that is, ex- and that is exactly about storytelling. Mm. I hear all the time that we need more storytelling in government Mm. Mm. and civic tech, Mm. and I love hearing that because that's essentially what I try to do. However, there is a conflict or a dissonance about that, which Mm. is in order to have a good story, you need to have drama. Mm. You need Mm. to have conflict. Government is not particularly good. And it's not their position to profile the drama or the tension or the conflict in a government process because it's bad business. It's a bad idea. It's not the right way to, to do something. And, I, and conversely, you can't really have a good story without having tension or conflict or drama somehow. Mm. And there are ways to go around it. You need a villain if you're gonna have, because you've got to get over a hump. But the problem a lot of times in government is they just tell facts. 
this is what we did, this is what's going on, and there's no mm. connectivity and no connection. When you talk about storytelling in the context of, you know, indigenous tribes, mm. they talk the story of their people, this is what happened, and these are the people. And that's another thing government is not good at, is profiling their own people, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's because it's a politician's job to be the face and mouth of government. It's mm -hmm. not the public service. Mm -hmm. So how do you reconcile mm. all of that yeah. and telling really good stories that have conflict, that don't get anyone fired, mm -hmm. that profile public servants that are reticent about being in the public eye? Mm. Yep. How does that, like, I, I wanted to spend a few minutes just on that issue. Yeah. So I have many thoughts on this. I really love this question. Thank you for, for asking it. Uh, so, so one thing that I would want to point out um, and it's a partial answer, but, but I think it's an important framing answer. Uh, I think as constituents, voters, we need to take responsibility for how we hold government accountable. And if we say that if we see drama, we're not going to vote somebody in, that's on us. That's not on them. That's not on government. That is on all of the people who, who judge government based on whether we judge it a failure or not. And we need to realize that we are consuming the media that says this is a sensational, corrupt story. We need to own that we are, we are looking for that story. And if we don't want that to be reality, we have to stop looking for that particular story. We need to look for a different story. And that is not anything that government can do anything about. That is something that we all, as consumers of media, need to take Don't watch the train for. wreck. It's yep. so hard. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Or, or look at it differently. Tell a different story about the train wreck. Maybe it wasn't, you know, there's, there's different versions of the story. It doesn't have to be Jerry Springered. Right, right. And, and, and I, would, I would argue that's mostly driven by us. I think it's probably like sugar. We, we are inclined to move towards certain things. And, and I think there's people are incentivized to push us towards sugar, things like sugar. But ultimately we are in control of that. We, we, each of us can control our sugar consumption, right? And so, so I think that's part of the answer. Um, the other thing that I think is important for all of us to realize is that we understand our world for better and for worse. We don't understand it in the context of data. We understand it as stories. We, there are stories that we tell ourselves that drive all of our behaviors, all of our actions, those stories, it, that's hardwired into our brains and how we think and understand the world. And those stories have all the characteristics of stories that we know. And they, that includes drama, that includes characters. All those things are, are necessary for us to understand. So our concept of ourselves includes drama. And if government wants to be a part of that concept, the, it's not an option to avoid drama. That there is no version. If it's not a real story, then people won't be able to internalize it. People won't have access to it. So I think, it, I think a starting point needs to be to acknowledge or at least to investigate stories. Like, it, my experience with government is not about the form that I filled out. It's about the story that I tell myself about that form. What did that form mean to me? What did that experience mean to me? What did it confirm about my preconceived notions of what government is or what did it dispute? Those things are how we understand government. And until we can start on that platform, then we can't really start tweaking stories because we need to understand like, well, what's the, what is the impact of a story on, on an individual? Well, and for me, this is, Richard, what makes the stuff that we do so important. 
you know, we are trying to find ways of telling stories that make, you know, public servants, the civic tech community, heroes. Heroes that people want to, to, to heroes see them, that people see themselves in, they can empathize with, which means they're human, they're messy, they, you know, they make mistakes, they're not perfect, um, they're relatable, they're vulnerable. And that's, those are the stories we need to start telling more and more about not just government, but like civics in general. Uh, and the people who are trying to make changes in their community so that people have a model they can, you know, shoot for. And, and they, it changes the narrative of how we talk about government mm-hmm. and civics. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. So, so um, is it necessarily true that a story needs a hero? Is, is, that, is that a version of a story or is that all stories? All stories will have a hero. The, the premise of, a ser- I think... Let me rephrase the statement, which is, I think every story needs a protagonist. Yep. Which is, and, and this is a conversation Derek and I have all the time when we discuss, like, when we're putting something together, the audience needs to relate to a character because the audience learns through that character. Yeah, agree. The yeah. analogy that I use all the time, is going back to Star Wars, and you'll like this one, it is the original one, 1977, A New Hope, Ooh. where, exactly, right? <laughs> we're back on track. Exactly. Right? Back on, finally, back yeah. on track. <laughs> But Luke Skywalker is a protagonist who also happens to be the hero, but he learns about the Force through the interactions that he has with Obi-Wan Kenobi mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. he teaches him. But really, that's a term called exposition in, in, in filmmaking and movie making. In Game of Thrones, exposition was, usually happened during sex scenes, so yeah. it was called <laughs> sex position. But it's during those moments that a protagonist... When a protagonist learns something new about the world they're in or about themselves, the audience learns that same thing, mm. right? So now there are other ways to convey that information, obviously, right? But fundamentally, to, to answer your question, does every story need a hero? Maybe not. We've okay. got a whole bunch of anti-heroes out there. Yep. But every story needs to have a character that the audience can relate to, and that is typically the protagonist. Yeah. Well, and something I think that's really interesting is so bring us back to the summit is that's what's happening at the summit right now. Hmm. You've all of these different sessions. Each session is a storytelling exercise. Mm-hmm. And the people, you know, at the front of the stage, those are the protagonists. And the people in the audience are the people who are, you know, exposing through that protagonist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> learning, right. learning. Learning, there we go. Uh, um, and so that's one of the things that makes something like, you know, right now we are, like this summit is, you know, this amazing experience of storytelling. Yeah. It's happening in room, all the rooms here and in the, on, on the main stage. This is storytelling in action. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd love to share this one example of uh, where that question came from. And, and, and the protagonist idea, I think, really resonates. So I, uh, I had the opportunity to join a leadership fellowship. And its, its central feature was something that was called the Individual Learning Excursion. And it was built around Joseph Campbell's hero's yeah. journey. Yeah, yeah. So Star Wars, right? Like mm. so, so this this concept of of um, going on an adventure, bringing back an elixir, like transforming in the process, and to understand each of our individual leadership through this lens, and to to actively to embody this journey, and to understand what that that feels like. And interestingly, it it's uh, so I live in Honolulu, Hawaii. You have the it's shirt a, for it. It's a I'm I am wearing <laughs> uh, I'm proudly wearing my Sig Zane Aloha shirt. It, <laughs> Uh, it is, uh, it's a Hawaii-based program, and 
And so one question that I, I remember thinking to myself and discussing with some of my colleagues is, uh, is there an equivalent story? So, so the hero's journey is a compilation of story tropes and, like, and story archetypes from around the world. Is, is there a place-specific version of a story like this where the same kinds of things happen, but it's about Hawaii? And the story that comes to mind for me is about Hi'iaka, which is uh, one of uh, Pele. So Pele, the goddess of the, the volcano, the volcano goddess, had many sisters, and Hi'iaka is one of her sisters. And there's a story about Hi'iaka's journey across the Hawaiian Islands that is very Odyssey-like. Uh, and and, it's, and it, is, it is, in my mind, the, the equivalent of the Joseph Campbell hero's journey. It's where you can observe Hi'iaka learning about Hawaii, testing herself against different situations. And, and I would not describe her as the hero of that story. And I would not describe any of the characters as the hero of that story. It's a very complex story and different things happen. But, but it is a, a beautiful story. It's one in which we learn about Hawaii and culture through the events and through the exposition. And it is one that definitely has a protagonist. Sorry, we're actually getting uh, a bit of a break here. Marlena, you've already come to us in the past. Please share what you have to share with us right now. You have to steal Ben. There you go. So uh, thank you. Yeah. Good time to wrap up the analysis. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So uh, thank Ben. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, we'll stay for a few minutes and wrap up the episode and all the thoughts that we've had here. But Ben, thank you so much for for coming, Marlena. You're always, you know. Thank you so much. We wouldn't be here with really if it wasn't for you. If we wouldn't have Ben. Uh, so Ben. Thank you so much. Yeah, what a wonderful, yeah, wonderful yeah. conversation. I really appreciate this. I hope to do it again, and I'll see you tomorrow. You bet. Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right. Aloha. All right. So, yeah. So, oh, we're just fun. Sort of, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? It, uh, again, another person. We've been blessed with so many great guests so far this, uh, this absolutely. day. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. It, it, it really has been. And there's just one thing. He, he had to leave through that Hawaii story for a moment, but there is something. He's talking about gods and goddesses and things along those lines. But there is something else related to Joseph, Cam Joseph Campbell, which is the power of myth, right? And that's what he's talking about. Government has really no myth aside from maybe colonialism, at least in Western society. And maybe we need to develop, start some new... Well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I actually think there are a lot of myths associated with government. I just don't think they're very good ones. <laughs> you know, there, there's this yeah. myth of government being, you know, very slow and uh, bureaucratic and red tape. And these are all myths that exist around government. There's, an e there's a mythology that, that everybody carries with them and is reinforced through uh, the media. And every time government makes a mistake and the media captures it, it reinforces that narrative, that mythology that exists around government. So I think it, there is a mythology that exists. I just think it's a very uh, unhealthy one and misguided one and one that doesn't help us in terms of tackling the problems or fixing the problems. You know, I. I I agree, but I disagree at the same time, which is I think it's more the, the brand of government at that point, what you're discussing. When I'm thinking of the, the power of myth or the mythology of government and as it stands today is within our own world of open government, open data, in Canada, we'll say, we have quote-unquote mythical figures that set the groundwork for this work to take place. James McKinney mm. is one of those individuals that really, he's the founder of Open North, and he did a lot of great work and set the, the, the foundation for us moving forward. The Tracy Lorios, the Michael Lancer, the people, the Yuri Congas that have been in the trenches for a long time and set everything for us. Those godlike figures that 
did the trailblazing 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago um, that we can hopefully relate to and look up to. And I think that's a little bit to what Ben was going towards in terms of this mythical figure that helped build Hawaii. Who are the mythical figures that are helping build this new way of government? Uh, if you want, actually, absolutely, yeah. If you want to come on in, we're just wrapping up our end of day relationship, so we're joined. Sorry, I apologize. We have. Um, sorry, say your name in the mic. Hi, uh, my name is Mohith Rao. Yeah, you want to you want to sit down for a few minutes and just give us your thoughts on how the day went today? Sure, why not? All right. <laughs> we're, we're doing this live. We're doing this live. <laughs> Sorry for crashing your event, but... Um, no, no, it's all, it's all good. End. So, uh, but you know, we're going to divert back a little bit and um, tell, tell us uh, a little bit about some of the sessions and some of the things you took away today from the... the, the, well, the also, keynote. first, give us a background on who you are. Yeah, oh, first yeah. and first, who are you? <laughs> Welcome. And right. uh, tell us your story um, and then... Yeah. 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 So I'm... Uh, my name is Mohit Rao and I um, I lead the, the, the Code for America Brigade in St. Louis. It's called oh, Open okay. yeah, yeah. St. Louis. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been involved with my brigade for about five years. I've been leadership for like four. Um, yeah, I, I, we mostly focus on like local um, government or you know, uh, organization work. Um, we're, we have a pretty heavy, like we used to be called like code for St. Louis. So we, we used to be a very heavy like developer, but we're trying to like expand into policy now, um, into data. You know, we, we want to try to like leverage our skills as technologists to help government kind of, um, be better at what they're supposed to be doing. Excellent. Well, we should welcome you. So welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and I guess, yeah, the, the question is, like, we're doing a debrief uh, on, on the day and sort of, like, what are the key things, the key trends uh, that you noticed from today and the sessions you went to? Yeah, so, like, one thing that really stood out to me um, was uh, Amanda's talk on, on the main stage with, I... That was powerful. I don't remember her name. Alicia Menendez? Yeah, yeah. And how, um, you know, we do a lot of things, in, in, you know, behind the scenes, but then it's like, no one really knows because because maybe we haven't focused on the delivery part you know like what are we like we, we, if we don't tell anyone what we're doing then no one will know and then then like what's the point of what we're doing so i think like a huge focus at least for me from going from what from here is how can i deliver this in a way that you know uh appeals to more people or at least like you know how can you make it sexy to more eyeballs? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, I also took a, I went to a session um, about like procurement and like working with like you know startups and and, and outside versus in inside uh, or you know building digital services or whatever. And uh, I, th I think it's it's very interesting because it's so like nuanced based on what project right it depends on what needs like the the project has like, certain things like. You know, you don't have to hire a whole development team and have to worry about HR and all this stuff for government when, you know, you just, uh, you can hire, you know, you know, more like tech educated people who can make these decisions, but then, it, you know, let, let like, you know, whatever companies out there um, um, kind of uh, handle all that stuff since that's what they're good at. So it's like, how does it work? So in this case, they were talking about, you know, um, they, were, they were pretty much talking about that same point. Um, so I thought that was very interesting um, because I, I've faced that, you know, a lot of like companies have like reached out to us 
right? Because it's like, hey, you know, you work with governments. Like, we're this consulting company. We'd love to, like, work with you guys. But then it's like, you know, they don't really understand the relationships with, uh, you know, how public sector works because they've only worked with, like, you know, large, large companies. That's it. And then they go into it. Like, we have had a, we had an issue and, you know, we went into, they went into this, like, try to go into this contract where it was such a big contract, it spooked the government. And they were like, nah, you know, we don't have the funding for this. This is not going to work. Whereas, you know, we, we, they brought us in and then, like, opened STL and said, hey, you know, how do we do this? How do we, how do we interface with these people? And they were like, and I was like, let's take it, you know, small chunks at a time. And it worked out, you know. Well, and I think for me, this is, this is one of the interesting themes and, and trends from today as well is this, this question of how do we bring these different organizations and these different sectors together uh, when they have different cultures, different uh, incentives, different structures, different processes. Uh, and one of the things that I know is Code for America actually does a really interesting job, and it's not just Code for America. Like the, um, some of the other groups that we've met with today as well have played a similar role of being that mediator mm-hmm. to help mediate between these different parties, these different organizations that want to work together. They, right. they have a common path they want to work towards. They just don't know how. Right. And so these, these third these like third party organizations, they serve as these mediators mm-hmm. to help bring these groups together and find a way to work yeah. together and create incredible outputs. I mean, oh, yeah. all day we've been hearing about these amazing projects that have delivered. And that's the key thing is we talk about ideas all the time. You've got to deliver. Correct. And these are deliver like these are being delivered, these projects having real impact on real people. And it's happening because we're finding our way through the messiness of these differences in relationships and cultures and processes. And and these these organizations, these mediators are playing a huge role in making that happen. Which is something yeah. I hadn't thought about because it's a big question of how these things work together, uh, so that was definitely a big takeaway for me as well. Yeah, yeah, and then also, you know, this isn't really a session or anything like that, but I've just seen the involvement here. You know, just like I feel like I don't know, maybe it was like pandemic caused this, like you know, just like you know, people's minds that they want to be more like you know conscious about what how they how they operate and just in general like in, in government. But it feels like it feels like they're more like open now they're like okay we see that this is a huge like pain point that we were that we were facing that now we're like okay let's stop listen let's see what people are saying there's people out there who do want to help us and that's great like i think that's that's that that kind of openness is now going to lead to more you know kind of um partnerships and as well as that delivery i think that main thing is that delivery getting things actually done so that you know government can do it's thing. Well, I almost wonder if it's like this evolution of, of change, mm-hmm. where at the beginning it's about you know exploring ideas, testing things on the margins, um, but at some point you have to get into places where you're actually making a real difference, uh, where things are being delivered at scale. And I think we're now getting to that place with a lot of this stuff around civic tech and digital transformation. This is not a new concept anymore. It's been around for a couple of decades, and it's taken that long for it to hit the mainstream. And I agree. I think the pandemic has accelerated the need to move into this space. Uh, it's it's made it both in terms of because we've become so remote, we've needed the technology, mm-hmm. but also it's a pandemic. People are in crisis, so we've needed to deliver. Mm. And so I think those two things together have really transformed uh, how things are happening and bringing things to delivery at scale. The question for me, and I know a lot of other people have been talking about this as well, is now as we hopefully come out of the pandemic, how do we make sure that we don't snap back into our old way of doing things, but instead forge a new path forward together? And and you know what? I want to riff off of that because I've heard you mention this before, and I do agree with you. We don't want to go back to to the well or go back to baseline, right, after moments of stress. 
But there is, I'm going to be the, the, the wet blanket here. There is a concern about moving and delivering as quickly as we did during the pandemic, and that is transparency and accountability. Yeah. There's a lot, especially at the political level, a lot of decisions were made, a lot of money was spent. Money was thrown at the door exactly. in questionable ways, absolutely. Right. So to me, I agree with you wholeheartedly. We don't want to go back to baseline, but at the same time, there are lessons learned here for all the organizations that are affiliated with anything related to government and the pandemic, which is... Okay, now we need to put some controls, right? We need to to marry the old way of doing procurement with this new way and still remaining aligned with the values that open government preach, which is accountability, transparency, and engagement. Because a lot of people uh, have felt disenfranchised from the process. Why did this organization get that much money and I didn't? It's because they had to move fast and they could do it, and but it was a very opaque process. Well, and I think I, I completely agree. And I think one of the themes in terms of we're talking about trends from today, the other themes I noticed is this focus around participation and having putting users at the center of the process. And I think this is one of the things that helps address that concern um, is, you know, if we can put the people who, if we can take the people who are, actually using the services and putting them at the center of the service design and the service delivery, we are more likely to get services that meet their needs. That address, and that addresses issues around transparency and accountability. And so, again, that's... A, I don't that's, know. I, I'm not going to challenge you on that, Derek. And, and feel free to come in on this, Mohit. Just putting someone in the center of the process does not ensure transparency and accountability. In the world where we don't trust government, what we need is receipts. We need to know how... And why this was chosen. It's like, but, but it's, it's showing the, the process. But if they're at the center of it, isn't that what's happening? Not if necessarily. They, if, they, if they are at the center of it. Who's they, they in your... The users of the service. The people with lived experience. We talked earlier today yeah. about the, the importance of lived experience and centering lived experience in this process, which I know is really important to uh, you know, the different brigades. Right. Um, by bringing them into the actual process itself, they're involved in it. Therefore, they don't need a receipt because they're doing the transaction themselves. But you can't have, like, in the United States, that's close to 300 million people. They can't all be part of that process. Right. So this is what comes to mind. So uh, there's a, we're talking about, you know, heroes and mythology around government. And there's a big hero within the government of Canada, Laura Wesley, who's done a lot of amazing work in a bunch of different areas. One of the areas she's done a lot of work in is around community engagement. And one of the things that she, I remember her telling me once, is that trust in the system doesn't mean, for people to trust the system or trust something, it doesn't mean that they need to be involved. It doesn't need, mean that they need to be involved in it themselves. What it means is that they need to know that there are people like them, people that they trust and identify with. Trust are, by proxy. Trust by proxy, exactly. So in this case, do we need the 300,000, million, however many people to be involved in the process? No. But what we do need is we need to have a representation of that involved in the process. And I think that's just good service design. Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I don't know where, where, where I, what I think about that. Because in this case, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, we need receipts. And I feel like there's a, there's a way we could do that. Because there's always, like, even if we do have, like, you know, this, like, trust by proxy thing. Yeah, but it's like at the end of the day, it's like, how can they kind of, like, is there a ledger? Where it's like, okay, so the person that I trusted is actually following, you know, or, or, or mm-hmm. re- representing me now, right? Because that can change. Like people, people change their minds, or people change their like, you know, viewpoints. And at that point, maybe they'll have to find a new person that they trust, or they do it themselves. So I think, I think in this case, like, there's there are certain like 
initiatives that I've 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 seen like 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 only like participatory governance, right? Where it's like, can we use technology, right? To um, can we use technology to kind of uh, facilitate this 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 discussion? Where you know, it's not just a forum, but in this case, it's like it's it's voting and it's like proposals and. And that's how we do it. I mean, there's a lot of European cities that that have done it. I mean, New York has done it with uh, with some of their some of their like I guess lesser of importance processes. But eventually, I feel like if we get in that culture of like asking the public, then we can eventually do that too. And one thing I'll say just really quickly, because I know we need to be wrapping up <laughs> this uh, the summary, this analyst, and now we've done a lot of analysis. Um, is that the other piece that has talked, been talked about a lot, and this summit I think is a great example of this in, in action, is this idea of openness. We talk mm-hmm. about you know, stories from the open gov. It's about openness is a key part of that. And this is where that, you know, telling stories about, okay, do the thing, but as you do the thing, talk about it. Mm-hmm. Share it. Yes. Work in the open. And that, I think, helps build the trust so people can, that's the receipt. That's where you can audit right. and be like, is this person who I think is a representative of mine truly right. in line with what I want to do? I think that is so key. That's why what we're doing right now with this is so important in terms of sharing this out to the public so people can, can audit you know, what's happening at the summit. They can audit mm. some of the different projects that are happening and, and feel that they can trust it because they can see it. There is so much to unpack in a day's worth of Code for America so sessions and keynotes. We're just scratching the surface too. It yeah. really is. And um, Mohit, I want to thank you for... for for coming in into this conversation, sort of, <laughs> yeah. and and for those of you, obviously, you're you're not seeing what happened, where we're just sort of set up at a table in the nope. the, the, the hall of the conference, and Mohit saw us speaking, so like, hey, can I join you? I was like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> we're working in the open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thank you for offering your thoughts, and uh, wish you the best of luck in St. Yeah. Louis. Uh, thank ex- you. Except for the blues. Uh, okay, come on. <laughs> All right. So uh, we I mean, that, I, we the still got the cards now, so I can't really give them a hard time. <laughs> we st- we still got the cards. Well, you know, yeah, we'll, that's we'll, true. We'll, we'll take that trophy, I guess. <laughs> So, uh, with all that said, we want to thank uh, Mohit, Mohit Ra- Rao, 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 yeah, uh, with the brigade out in St. Louis. We want to thank Ben Trevino uh, for joining us, yeah. and Marlena um, Medford, who joined us for a very brief moment. Well, and has both- been orchestrating behind the scenes so much oh, of what's yeah, happened. Yeah, you have here. no idea. Marlena has been tremendous in that respect, and is sort of hurting some of the cats for us. So, again, a big thank you for all those people that joined us. Uh, big thank you. Yes. Thank you. Absolutely. Also, uh, you know the hosts. Obviously, we gotta oh, we gotta give them oh, credit for to doing all this stuff. Oh, not just the host, the hosts and 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 There's the other so hosts, which is there and everyone. No, yes. yeah. Um, but uh, so with all that said, we're about to wrap up the episode here. Uh, as usual, thank you for listening. Rate, leave us a, a, a comment. Tell us speakers or stories that you like to hear from. And as usual, let's make it open.